0: The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You are Included, theologian Dr. Alan J. Torrance explores the wrath of God, hell, God's love, as well as how science points to God. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Let's talk about a subject that is uh, sometimes misunderstood, perhaps, or frightening
1: to people. What is the wrath of God? The wrath, or the wrath, as we say in this country. Yes. When we're speaking about the wrath of God, we are speaking about the love of God. We mustn't forget that. There are two kinds of anger, right, or wrath, that we know in the human context. There's wrath which which um, can emerge when someone's will is frustrated, right? When um, someone's football team doesn't win the game, right? Or the or the, uh, the referee makes a decision that you think wasn't the one that you wanted to be made, yes. and people get angry, right? And a lot of people think of God's wrath as as the kind of the wrath of an an arbitrary voyeuristic individual up there. Um, when his will is frustrated, but that is that is a, 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 um, that's an unbiblical definition of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the wrath of the jealous God, right? And what what is meant by the jealous God? The, the jealous God. Not not. Uh, it's not talking about jealousy in the in in, in the, of the kind that would mean a breach of the commandments. You know, thou shalt not covet, right? It's rather um, the, um, God's wrath, God's jealousy is God's love for his people. And when God loves a, um, a people, he hates to see that people and um, taken apart by sin or by um, disease or whatever. And the wrath of God is God's anger at the costliness of sin a people that he loves, when he sees the destruction of a people. So the best kind of human analogy is when a father adores a daughter or indeed a son, and they are used and abused, but in some relationship where someone just takes advantage of the one they love. Then you'll then you'll then there's then there'll be a wrath, an anger that is a righteous anger, grounded in love. For the well being. Now, the thing about God's wrath is, God's wrath doesn't mean that He just loves the victim and hates the victimizer, right? Um, God loves the victimizer as well as the victim, right? But God's angry with those responsible for all that destroys and disrupts um, um, the shalom, the peace and communion and koinonia of His people. So you can't have a proper understanding of the love of God without an equally robust doctrine of the wrath of God. And it's imperative that we don't forget that to speak of the love and grace of God is to be radically, uh, is to take radically seriously the biblical affirmations of the wrath of God. And God's love isn't any kind of mamby-pamby, sentimental, fuzzy um, love. It's a real valuing of the dignity of people. And when that dignity is destroyed or betrayed by sin, God is angry, as angry as he is loving. But the important thing is, the anger of... When we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking, talking something about something that is arbitrary. Right? The Christian life should never be based in fear. Right? It always... The Christian life is lived from the love of God. And when we see the wrath of God, we see beyond it the love of God. The wrath reposes in the love of God. And so we should rejoice in the wrath of God. Because you know, if if we've understood it right, it's the wrath of God that values persons. You know, right? that loves and um, not just not just the exploited but the exploiter, the sinner, and, and the sinned against.
0: Now, does the passage uh, the, about how uh, mercy triumphs over judgment, is that applicable to uh, the wrath of God and the love of God in this way?
1: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, it's, this talk of mercy is, um, it is there because of the wrath of God. Okay? God forgives those with whom he's angry. Right. He forgives me, although I give him endless cause to be more than angry. And we've got to say this as Christians. We rejoice in the fact that he's angry. I, um, I, I can rejoice in the fact that God's angry with me, because God's only angry with me because of the extent of his love for me and for those whom against whom I sin. Um, so when we're talking about the wrath of God, we are talking about good news. Odd though that may
0: seem, we tend to think of uh, of God's anger being just like ours. Exactly, and and usually ours is irrational. Exactly, even if it even if it's somewhat justified, it still is not under control so well, and it's and it's irrational, and it it uh, usually f- forms poor conclusions
1: while we're in that state of mind. Precisely, not so with God. That's exactly right. We, we, what we must not do is project those conceptions of human anger and wrath, um, and kind of frustration of will, onto God, because if we do that, then we've not, um, we don't have the biblical understanding of wrath. Do you know the single? If there's a single theological mistake we make more than any other, it's when we take human concepts, interpret them in human context, and then project them onto God. And um, there's a great example of Jesus dealing with that problem. Um, when after, after Peter's confession about the Christ, um, Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to suffer and so on and so forth. And, and Peter becomes very angry. Remember, he says, no, 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 there's no way we're going to allow this to happen and so on and so forth. Because Peter had a concept of Messiah. The word Messiah, concept of Messiah, which he understood, and in the light of that concept, that prior concept he had in his mind, he was going to make sure that Jesus fitted that concept. And what, how did Jesus respond? The sure. hardest comment that Jesus ever made was to Peter when he was doing that. You know, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, in other words, um, it is demonic to take a prior concept from the human order and try and Fit God into that prior human understanding. Why is it demonic? Because it's reversing revelation. It's actually turning revelation on its head. Revelation takes our human terms and fills them with new meaning, the meaning that is given them by the gospel and by God's involvement with us in the person of Christ. And that happens, that, we must do that with love, we must do that with wrath. If we do the opposite, then, and um, we are actually, we are actually not just impeding revelation; we're inverting it, and the one that inverts, you know, it's, to do that is demonic. There's another remarkable example that, in some ways, that, that feminist theology has, uh, um, as I think, at one level grasped but failed to fail to think through. Um, Jesus is very concerned about our using concepts, uh, our terms and concepts that are not reconceived in the light of the gospel. So, for example, he doesn't like us using status symbols. I'm a professor. Jesus would have been very sceptical about my using the term professor. right? We're not to call anybody rabbi. There's only one rabbi. There's only one teacher. Call no man teacher. There's only one teacher, namely God. And and what what Jesus saw was the way human beings use the terminology of hierarchy to oppress and control and exert power over people. Now, what does Jesus do? Okay, you're not allowed to use the term, teacher. I'm not allowing you to use any term that people are going to use to oppress others and to control and so on and so on. And then he goes on and says, and call no man father, because you've only one father. In other words, if we're going to use a term of God and humanity, right, Um. That's the, sa- the same term, sorry, of God and humanity. Then, as Jesus saw, there's the potential for abuse, for male fathers claiming a term that's appropriate used of God, and then, as it were, and um, taking that divine authority to themselves in some sense. So, if we're going to use the term "father" of um, of God, we are to call it no men father. That was a dominical injunction. How many, people, how many Christians do you know stop using the term father um, of their you know, male parent? The Christian church has ignored that for 2,000 years. Had we, had we obeyed Jesus, there would never have been the feminist charge as to um, it's oppressive to call God father. Now the feminists are right that there is a risk. If we call God father and males father, then we, <clears throat> by association, give male parents a kind of an authority, a superiority in in, in the world order, all right? And we open the door to sexism. Jesus anticipated that. We're not to call anybody father, technically. And in other words, now I think what he means is that, quite simply what he meant was this, we have got to be really careful that every time we use terms of God, they are radically commandeered and, and disentangled from any continuity with the con- human context that is potentially op- um, oppressive. So, back to the, the original question, the term wrath. When we use the term wrath of God, we must make sure that it's understood in the light of the totality of God's orientation to the world and to his people. His redemptive purpose. Exactly. His, his redemptive purpose. Um, every term that is used of God and God's purposes must be reconceived in the light of, in the, light of the gospel. And of course, the, the great theologian who, who was rigorous about this was John Calvin. Karl Barth, I think, perhaps even more consistently than, than John Calvin, but Calvin really did set about doing that in his, in his great work, The Institutio. Every term he sought to reconceive in the light of the biblical statements. Okay.
0: The, um, in that context, then, let's talk about hell for a moment. What, yeah. what is hell?
1: Uh, how, how should a Christian view hell? Well, hell is a place of separation from, from God. It's a place, place of godlessness.
0: And just, Do you no, mean separation in the sense of alienation
1: or in the sense of actual uh, space? No, 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 I think think alienation. People standing against God, right? Trying to live without God. Now, there's so much that needs to be said here. First of all, I'd want to say is this. When Jesus introduced the term kingdom, we often talk about the kingdom of God in terms of heaven. One day, the kingdom will be fully realized. But the kingdom is now at hand. Well, just as the kingdom will be fully realized on one occasion, and and yet is, uh, uh, one day, and yet is... Is at hand at the moment. I think we can say the same. We should say we have to say the same thing about hell. Mm. There's a sense when, to the extent that we seek to stand, live without God and stand against God, and yes. um, hell's already realised in some sense, right? And um, of course, the the Bible seems to suggest that one day there'll be it'll be fully realised for people who seek to stand, you know, against God. But that raises the That raises the question as to what we can say about um, the population of hell. And then we get into very controversial territory. Um, Can I just speak to that for one moment? Several things I think have got to be said, um, but they can be said very quickly. First of all, to the extent that hell is populated, it's populated by people who are loved by God. God is love. God loves all of his creation and unconditionally, and that never ends. Secondly, to the extent that hell's populated, it's populated um, by people for whom Christ died, and whom Christ has forgiven. And People find that very difficult to conceive. But just as we are to forgive 70 times 7 unconditionally, right, with no exception, so does Jesus. Jesus, as a fellow human, wouldn't tell us to do something he wouldn't do himself. Um, remember Jesus is God come as human and if God was telling us to do things that he wouldn't do himself then there's no integrity in the gospel hell is populated by people who are loved and forgiven by God what can we say I think the most one can say is this to the extent that it's populated um, it's populated by people whom God has allowed to opt to live against his purpose or lived in isolation from him. And to the, to the extent that if that happens and to the extent that that does happen, God is utterly distraught for eternity. Finally, it is not possible to be a Christian and want hell to be populated. It's just not possible, why? Because we are to love our enemies. And that means, that um, means all our enemies. We are to love Hitler. Right? Um, That's the
0: first question that we usually hear. Well, what about Adolf Hitler?
1: uh, uh, We're we're somehow to love Hitler. Now, that may be humanly impossible. Right? But I believe that God loves Hitler. And one day, when we have that mind which was in Christ Jesus, fully in us, even we will be set free to love even Hitler. or
0: In in that that day, uh, we would also have... Seen and taken part in everything that Hitler had taken away, having been restored through Christ, though
1: wouldn't we? It, it, yes, that's right. It, it'll it, it'll be a lot easier. Um, okay, obviously, we don't love what Hitler did, right? Um, indeed, to love an evil person is not to love um, what you know what what they're you know they're they're evil, right. obviously. Then one um, final comment. Um, I Often I have students come up to me and say that they had a, a grandparent that they loved who's just died, and they sadly weren't Christians, and they fear for their salvation. And they find it um, puzzling to think, how could they, you know, it, could it be the case that God um, doesn't love the grandparent as much as they love their grandparent? And of course the, the only answer to that is, God loves the grandparent, even though she um, he wasn't a Christian, um, infinitely more than I, than they possibly could. Right. And right? um, so, when it comes to questions of um, um, the future destination of people, very often loved people, people whom we've loved and who've, who've died, I think we just say this: the the only God we know is God who's all loving and who's all just and all-forgiving, who would never do anything that was contrary to his love, to his justice, and to his forgiveness. And therefore we can joyfully commit those people to God and trust those people with God, given that God loves them more even than we do. And so there's, there's good, I think there's good news, um, even despite the, the biblical warnings about hell. I mean, the dominical warnings. Jesus speaks about hell. And though it does raise a question sometimes, and whether Jesus, in some sense, speaks to that in and through his, in and through the cross and resurrection, whether we need to go back to what Jesus said and interpret it in the light of, in the light of what he's done, because he descended to hell for us, yes
0: that's the very reason he came was because of the reality of of,
1: uh, of, of consequences
0: sec- of separation in sec- hell, yes. yeah yeah. Well, let's switch gears for a moment yeah. and ask about um, a science. Uh, is, is science um, a, a hindrance or a help
1: to Christian faith? Good science is, is a <laughs> wonderful gift of God, right? It's helping us to understand God's creation. Simple as that. Um, and um, so to the extent that scientists are being genuinely scientific, Interpreting the contingent order and um, creation out of itself in its own light um, and are doing so truthfully and faithfully um, it's a wonderful gift. And they repose, of course, on on the whole... Si- science can only function because of the intelligibility of the contingent order. And that intelligibility is given by God. It's it's, it, um, it stems from the intelligence of the creator, right? Um, so science, um, I think the existence of science presupposes the existence of God. I think it's an extremely strong argument from science for the existence of God. Um, if you're if you wanting to engage in arguments for the existence of God. Um, and but there are there are problems in the scientific community because there's a philosophy that's sometimes confused for science called naturalism. And naturalism is as old as the you know old as the hills, well not quite as the- the hills, but it's as ill as civilization, and that and it is the view. It goes right back to Lucretius. It is the view that the um, the world is basically a closed causal system that just um, operates in in, in in indifference to questions of value, fairness, uh, and so on. And certain forms of science sometimes in the biological sciences this is more common Um, science wants to presuppose naturalism the view that God does not exist Um, and to the extent that that, and we see that um, illustrated in Richard Dawkins' thought for for example he believes that to be scientific um, is to repudiate the existence of God is to be an atheist and I'm emphatically of the view that that is not to be scientific. Um, and scientists actually, I think, are not in the, should not be in the business of, of, um, of, of making theological claims. That is to go beyond um, the boundaries of scientific investigation. How compatible, therefore, is the, affirming the existence of God with science? Um, it's quite remarkable what's taken place in the last 30 years. We've seen in the last 30 years the most significant developments in philosophy, in Christian philosophy, since Thomas Aquinas. I did, in 1974, I I started a four-year philosophy degree. And in those days, there was a man called J.L. Mackey, who was of the view that um, it was logically incoherent to be, to be a Christian theist. And you could count the number of, um, of Christian philosophers on the fingers of a mutilated hand, to be frank, and the vast majority of analytic philosophers um, um, repudiated theism. In the space of only 30 years, that situation has changed profoundly. It is now the case that at least one in four analytic philosophers in North America, which of course is where and, and philosophy is at its finest. One in four, are, as a theist, the vast majority, are Christian theists. Um, and in 2001, uh, one of the world's leading atheists, atheist philosophers, Quentin Smith, wrote an article, and this is coming back to the science issue, mm-hmm. um, in the journal he edited, which was called Philo, that's the Journal of the Humanist Philosophers Association, with every leading atheist philosopher on its board... All the brains behind Richard Dawkins, you know, Daniel Dennett, and so on. Um, and his article was a ten thousand word article called "The Metaphilosophy of Naturalism," looking at the philosophical underpinnings of naturalism. That's the um, atheistic philosophy of, of Dawkins and these folk. And in that article, he, he he establishes that the Christian philosophers, this new breed of Christian philosophers, led really by Alvin Plantinga, who's who's the greatest living Christian philosopher, one of the the greatest philosophers, full stop, that the Christian philosophers, he says, have beaten the atheists, the naturalist philosophers, at every key point. Their arguments are more logically rigorous um, um, more cogent. His article is really a current call to atheists to get their act together if they're not going to be absolutely um, swamped by the quality of Christian philosophy. So one of the things that's emerged out of these um, the, the Christian philosophers is the extent to which um, um, science, uh, the, the, the number of arguments that stem from contemporary science for the existence of God. One of the, one of the factors that these Christian philosophers have, have um, been writing about recently is the fine tuning of the universe, the um, the carbon, the chances of carbon emerging are infinitesimally small. Um, and other factors, um, relating to Planck time and so on. I, I won't go into the details right now. But the factors, the chances of this universe occurring in the way that it's, you know, coming about in the way that it's, it, it's come about, um, such that there can be life on this planet, is, is just in unthinkably small. We're talking about factors such as 1 in 10 to the power 60, one of the fine tunings, another fine tuning, 1 in 10 to the power 43. Now the difference between um, one in ten to the power forty-three and one in ten to the power forty-two. We're talking about massive, massively um, small chances. And um, ten to the forty-three is obviously you know ten to the forty-two. Nothing's zeros after it. And um, so in other words, the chances of there being I, um, a planet in which you and I can sit here. Being filmed and having intelligent conversation... oh, hopefully usually intelligent conversation um, are unthinkably small, and science has no explanation for that. Um, science can't explain the intelligibility of the contingent order. It can't explain why there's something rather than nothing. Okay, um, for example, one of the one of the attempts to exp- explain fine tuning by um, on the part of atheists is um, Called the multiverse theory, which suggests that there's an, an an infinite or infinite number of random universe occurrings one of which just happens to look like it's you know it's it's been designed. Um, but then there need to be a mechanism to produce all these random potential universe occurrings and um, and that where would that come from? And that still wouldn't explain why there's something rather than nothing. So um, so there's a vast number of absolutely fundamental questions, right, um, which are beyond the bounds of science, which science will not be able to answer, right, and which um, the theism answers very straightforwardly. In other words, theism has spectacular and unparalleled explanatory power. So it's something to bear in mind when we get this the media is forever bombarding us with the atheism of people like the Dennets, the Churchlands, and the Dawkinses of this world, and Sam Harris, and so on and so forth. Um, the quality of their arguments um, in the final analysis are, don't even begin to touch the quality of the arguments that are being offered right now by the world's leading Christian philosophers.
0: Do you have a suggestion if a, for a layperson who might want to read, say, one book that would help them along those lines, what, uh, what would it be? Do
1: you know, I think um, um, John Polkinghorne has written um, some very useful books. Um, David Wilkinson of Durham has written some very easily accessible books. And the person that I would encourage everyone to try and engage with is Alvin Plantinga. And he has written a, a great many of the articles that he's written on, on God and Science are on the Internet. So you don't, you don't even need to yeah. fork out to, for a book to be familiar with the issues. And Scotsman will never fork out if they don't have to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.